I was called down to the Senate by with a very ugly letter by 14 senators saying, uh, how could you dream about asking that question? Who paid for a study? What the relationship is between the author of the study and the outcome? For a long time, the BMJ has been interested in conflicts of interest and how that skews the research base. Now, a little while ago in the podcast, we talked about Big Tan and Eleni Linus, who's a US dermatologist and researcher from Stanford's journey, into understanding how the tanning industry has affected the research that they sponsor. But also beyond that, used research to sow seeds of doubt into the association between sunbeds and skin cancer. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and in this podcast we are delving into how that tactic is not just happening in medicine, but all across a whole range of industries. I'm joined on the line by David Michaels, who's written a couple of books on this. The latest one is called The Triumph of Doubt, David, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to me on the podcast today. Oh, well, I'm very happy to be with you today. Um, so you're coming at this not from the, a medical per se point of view. Um, you were involved in in regulatory work within the government. So could you uh, explain to our listeners uh, who you are and a little bit of your background? I, I'd be happy to. I'm an epidemiologist. I teach at the George Washington University School of Public Health in Washington, D.C. Um, for many years, I worked in New York City uh, in the Bronx, and I was involved in studies on occupational health, but also public health in general, prison health. I started the first epidemiology unit in a jail in the United States, in Rikers Island, which is the jail for New York City. Uh, during the AIDS epidemic, I developed a mathematical model to predict the number of children who would lose their mothers to HIV AIDS that we published in JAMA and was then used for distribution of funds and different programs. Uh, I was very fortunate in uh, the late 1990s, uh, President Clinton asked me to come to Washington and be the Assistant Secretary of Energy for Environment, Safety and Health. That's essentially even though the name is energy, it's really about nuclear weapons and I was the chief safety officer in the nuclear weapons uh, complex, where I was the regulator. The uh, other regulatory agencies are not given much power to over the nuclear weapons complex. They, they have their own rules. Uh, and so I did that for a number of years. It was a very uh, exciting experience. I was able to put a compensation program together to provide uh, payments for people who developed work-related conditions making nuclear weapons. And then uh, went back to academia during the George W. Bush administration and then was asked by President Obama to come back into government in um, when he was uh, elected in 2009, he inaugurated in 2009, and I became the head of the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration for almost eight years. That's the um, agency in charge of protecting workers, uh, really in most industries. And I had a really great experience and was able to, um, I think, have a, a big impact. We got through some new standards. We changed our enforcement programs in many ways. And I've been very fortunate to be able to be in and out of academia uh, 
and to have the chance to work in high-level government positions, really without paying dues to get there. <laughs> I didn't have to come up in the bureaucracy. I arrived at the top, was able to do some very good things, and then go back to academia when the term was over. That's, uh, that's a nice job to have. Um, that time you were involved in government has obviously um, exposed you to uh, to some goings-on of industry and, and the way in which uh, that does affect people's um, health. And that led to you writing two books that are very, very measured, but I think um, reading between the lines, they come from quite an angry place. Um, what was it that you saw that sort of opened your eyes to what was going on and made you want to, to write about it? Well, that's right. I saw in the government, when I was inside the government, things that often people on the outside can't see, uh, which is... Uh, the the challenge, the struggle to issue protections, you know, the public health really uh, is one of the major focuses of the government. And certainly in the area of environmental health, for example, but also in uh, regulating drugs and all sorts of other things, uh, the government, the job of the government is to weigh out the evidence and figure out the best way to protect individuals and protect the public health, because individuals can't do that for themselves. They can't figure out if a drug is safe or effective. They can't control air pollution or what goes on in workplaces. Uh, it is the responsibility of the government. And what's fasc- what was fascinating is the um, not just the political debate that goes on, and based on who has power, who says we don't want to be regulated or we need to be regulated, but also how science is used in that debate. And what I found, really, to my um, disappointment, is that often corporations would uh, manipulate the science and claim things that weren't true or try to cause confusion or, or uh, as we say, manufacture doubt, you know, the tobacco model, in order to stop the government from doing things which I saw were very important to protect the public's health. Mm. And that manufacturing of doubt, um, I mean, it uses the the sort of inbuilt strength of science, its ability to to kind of self-regulate, to question itself, um, and subverts that uh, to to I don't know, almost distract it from from the the bigger picture. Could you explain, you know, in a nutshell, what happens? It, it does. You know, the 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 basic principle of public health protection is you make a decision based on the best available evidence. But the scientific model is saying, well, there's always uncertainty and we need to understand things better and go into things more deeply. So I think what um, the corporations have been able to do is to sort of flip that model over and say, until we have enough information, until we're absolutely sure, until there is dispositive proof, we shouldn't do anything. We shouldn't protect people. Of course, the model is the tobacco industry. You know, we there were the first studies that were published, in fact, uh, BMJ was among the first yep. in publishing uh, Sir Richard Dahl's studies in the early 1950s showing that uh, cigarette smokers were far more likely to get lung cancer. And uh, there really was no doubt about that by the early 1950s. Yet the tobacco industry uh, understood, with the help of some very, very smart public relations people, that by saying we care about this issue, we are going to do studies, we're committed to research. But in the meantime, just go ahead and keep smoking. Um, they set this model, and for years they were able to put off any sort of government regulation or control of tobacco by saying, 
we need to do more research, that there's there's uncertainty. And there really was no uncertainty, but they could find ways to make it look uncertain. They'd hire physicians, they'd hire scientists to wear white coats and say there's uncertainty. That model uh, is now widely used. It's really become standard operating procedure in many areas of public health. And that firms that don't want their product to be regulated hire scientists, some who actually come out of tobacco, who did that work at one point for tobacco in the 1980s or 90s, uh, to do the same thing, to say more research is needed, or this study, which suggests that this chemical causes cancer, for example, there are too many flaws. We really can't rely on that. We have to look at something else. And it, it's, uh, it's really become a whole industry. And it's become that industry because it's successful. Hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a tactic that works. It is, and um, so successful that product defense, which is uh, what you term it in here, is a whole industry of itself now. Yes, there are a bunch of companies that specialize in this, and and of course their their business model is to provide exactly the report, the study that their client wants, uh, and they do it quite well, and it's it's quite lucrative for them. It is. Um, I mean, we've been very aware of that kind of conflict of interest how the funding um for well your job perhaps or for your study can affect the outcome to the extent that um we now say um in the pages of the bmj if you're writing something that might affect practice so an education article or maybe uh, an editorial um we won't accept anyone who has a competing interest uh to do it but Something that I um, I hadn't really appreciated before reading your book was that when it comes to the public and regulators and um, the courts, that that understanding of, of what uh, competing interests do is not necessarily as well embedded. <laughs> That's uh, unfortunately true. In fact, in some ways, at least the US government is... Um, Really, back where the the medical journals were in the 1980s or 1990s, when the discussion was just beginning, uh, you know, the law correctly says that all all comments, all opinions should be considered, but they're considered uh, somewhat equally, and there's no requirement. There, there's not even the um, presumption that if you have a financial conflict of interest, that influences what you say, but there's no requirement even to collect that information. Mm. Uh, when I was at OSHA, uh, we tried to introduce, we did introduce the uh, request that if you were putting in studies into the docket, into the, the legal record, which the agency would use to make a decision, uh, you should provide the same standard uh, conflict declaration that any medical journal now asks for. And the response from the Republican leadership in the country was remarkable. I was called down to the Senate by, with a very ugly letter by 14 senators saying, uh, how could you dream about asking that question? Who paid for a study? What the relationship is between the author of the study and the outcome? Uh, it was shocking to me because to me, coming you know, out of the world of science, that is, that's a minimum requirement. Yeah, and I suppose that um, that leads into the next bit I was, I was um, going to ask you about, which is 
when I was reading your book, you, I think you sometimes, or at least sometimes when I'm reading something, I get a little moment that sort of clarifies what uh, what's going on. And in this, it was about how um, courts operate and how you know a ruling against a company um, might go. And Maybe maybe I should just ask you to explain it um, because you'll do that much more clearly. How about the burden of proof and and where that lies? Well, it's fascinating. You know, the one of the uh, things that many people don't understand is the burden of proof in courts is very different than in the regulatory system. We need to make decisions to protect the public based on much more limited evidence. We can't wait until you know we have many bodies in the morgue before we decide that we need to protect people. But in courts, correctly, there's a higher standard. You've got to determine whether or not an individual was made sick by a product. And that really requires a, a higher level of, of, of decision-making or proof. What I've seen is that there are product defense companies that specialize in writing studies that exist only really to go into court cases. The, um, they're published in what appear to be peer-reviewed journals, and they are there. Uh, reviewed by their peers, but they will be analyses that are pinpointed for certain types of court cases. And they're introduced in court, and they appear to say that these particular cases, they can't be valid because, for whatever reason, And but they look like, they're, they're really just legal opinions, but they look like scientific studies. Mm. And so uh, they'll show up in court. Uh, what's interesting, though, I think the most fascinating sort of development in these court cases is, um, you know, there are two different components of these cases. One is to try to figure out, did uh, the exposure in question cause an illness or an injury? And that's based on the science, and the this, this science can be manipulated in various ways. But then the question is, uh, did the, the defendant, did the corporation do something that really was um, intentionally bad? Should there be punitive damage? And what comes up in in many of these cases now are these the documents behind the scientific studies that were used in the first part, where companies will say, you know, we need to create these these fictional studies essentially. And when those memos come out, jurors are are appalled, and they they essentially uh, throw the book at these companies. They have very large. Um, uh, awards. The, the the one that's most recently in the news is um, what's happened to Johnson Johnson mm. and their their iconic product, baby powder, that we've all used. I mean, the smell is something you know we all remember from our childhood. At least I certainly do. Uh, and you know, uh, it's made of of talcum powder. It it's not actually always a talc product. In some places, Johnson's baby powder uh, has cornstarch or other products. But uh, the talc product. There have been indications since the 1970s that baby powder is contaminated with asbestos. And it's not surprising. Talc and asbestos are generally together in the same mines. And mineralogists were finding asbestos in talc, as I said, in the 1970s. Uh, at various points, the U.S. government tried to uh, have this product either registered as something that causes cancer because it has asbestos or labeled. And the industry, uh, including Johnson Johnson, but the, the consumer products industry and the mining companies, uh, 
hired some of these same product defense scientists, the scientists actually who had worked for the tobacco industry. Uh, and so when the U.S. National Toxicology Program, which is the agency in charge of labeling things as carcinogenic or not, uh, considered this question in about 2000, uh, and the, all the, the government studies said, look, you know, there's asbestos in this, we should to say it, it's probably cancer-causing. Um, the industry hired these these defense product defense experts, uh, and it, this is their own words to cause confusion, to convince the scientists on the National Toxicology Program uh, that there's too much doubt that the studies are contradictory. Uh, and I look at that very carefully. I'm actually a member of the Board of Scientific Counselors now of that same agency, so I, I looked at it qu really quite carefully. Uh, the data were clear, but they were able to to do that and put off any sort of labeling. Now, since then, there's been a lot of epidemiology suggestive, I mean, I, it's not all conclusive, but suggestive that that um, baby powder talc exposure increases risk of ovarian cancer in women who used it. Um, and there have been some court cases which, where jurists have found that uh, these ovarian cancer cases are associated with the exposure. But what the jurors really did was when they saw all these memos describing exactly what Johnson Johnson and other corporations were doing to convince scientists that they were wrong, essentially, and manufactured doubt. They uh, they really threw the book at Johnson Johnson. One in one case, there was a four billion dollar punitive damage award. Now that I assume will be released, but reduced. But the it, the outcome of that and the publicity has led to far or many many women deciding not to use baby powder and. Just a couple of weeks ago, Johnson Johnson pulled their product from the North American market. They just said, we're not going to sell it anymore. A problem they could have dealt with 20 years ago by not essentially manufacturing all this doubt. Um, it's come back to bite them. Mm. When it comes to something like um, manufacturing doubt, there you were talking about what happens to a product already on a market where lots of people have been exposed and, and harm can be potentially measured epidemiologically and, and proven. Um, another job of regulators is to set standards by which things enter the market. Um, is there attempts to see doubt uh, on, on that to reduce regulatory burdens as well? You know, um, I think in the new chemical market, we're seeing less of that uh, because of European regulation, the REACH program, which requires data before entering the market, uh, I think a lot of the big chemical companies know it would be, uh, there's really no percentage in them to get a bad product on the market. But I think in the uh, the area of pharmaceutical products, we're, we're seeing, we do see that. And BMJ, of course, has written about that. And Richard Smith wrote about this for, for years. Mm. Um, that I remember reading, uh, and this article of his I discussed in my first book, the um, showing that clinical trials done by some of the large drug companies are of very high quality, and they can they have the ability and the resources to do excellent uh, studies for longer term follow up and do all the sort of measurements they want. But you could design a randomized clinical trial to find the to find the sort of result you want uh, if you figure out exactly what comparisons you're going to use, what doses you're going to use. It, it's not a, uh, when you read the final study, 
it looks like this was just a, a simple head-to-head comparison, and of course the the drug our product, uh, the drug our company makes is the better one is what you read, but how that got shaped and how the design of that study led to that result is one that's um it's unfortunate and uh, sort of nefarious and uh, there have been plenty of examples I think where uh, drugs that uh, have been accepted and labeled and widely used were the uh, gone on the market as a result of that manipulation. Mm. And that is uh, nicely brings us on to talking about data. So one reason that in the BMJ, if we are um, publishing research into a, a drug like that, we would ask that the data underlying that research, the clinical study reports, um, be made available for scrutiny so that we can tell if there has been some sort of publication bias or you know endpoint switching that would uh, tell a story about a drug that might not be entirely true. Now we've talked a lot about open data, we've campaigned for open data um, and then I've slightly sort of taken aback when reading your book that um, that open data has led to to problems um, for researchers who are actually doing good research and, and finding out some of the harms that um, that these companies are causing. It, you know, it's true, and it's, it's unfortunate because obviously the principle of open data is a very good one, but we have a history in the United States of companies using that and abusing it, and now actually under Donald Trump, the, the um, environmental protection agencies are following down that path. Uh, it really dates back also to tobacco, with the first studies showing that environmental tobacco smoke, the secondhand smoke, uh, was causing increased risk of lung cancer among non-smoking spouses of, of smokers. And in some ways, that turned all of tobacco's arguments upside down, that for a long time they said, well, you know, we need to do more research, but you can look at the literature, you know, you make the choice whether to smoke or not. Once it became clear that environmental tobacco smoke also caused lung cancer in non-smokers, mm. this became a public health issue and required some protection for the whole public. Uh, the tobacco industry wanted the raw data from those studies because they knew they could reanalyze it and make the results go away. And you know, that's a, a trick of sort of epidemiologic alchemy. You can, I could do that. If you give me the raw data from a positive study, I could change the endpoints, I can change the cutoffs, change some assumptions about exposure. And it's easy to turn a positive study negative. It's actually quite hard to do the opposite, to make a positive study. But uh, you can turn that negative. And, and in fact, there is a, a group of specialists whose job it is, and they're paid very well, to take these studies done by government researchers and change them around and say, look, if when I analyze that data, I don't find the same result, and that that gives the impression of sort of equal and opposite studies, uh, and to stop regulation. Um, so in the United States, we now re- do require government-funded studies to be made available, uh, and I think that's quite reasonable as long as this the uh, re reanalyses are done under certain parameters that sort of you you have to state your your priors in advance and you have to say what your methods are you can't just go dredging to turn up the result you want um but what's gone on more recently is the environmental protection agency has taken a 
a proposal made originally by tobacco and said you can only use studies where you could get the raw data in issuing regulations or doing anything else to protect the public. And there are many studies that are not available to the Environmental Protection Agency. Of course, anything done outside the United States is not automatically available. Mm. Um, there are many studies, and they also said it has to be reproducible. Well, you know, we have results of studies done at uh, Chernobyl, for example, which uh, fortunately, are, we hope they're not reproducible. <laughs> we, we just really don't want to reproduce them. But there are lots of reasons you can't just say, unless you actually have the raw data and everything about them, um, we can't use them in regulation. But that's really what the Trump administration is trying to do. And they've actually said that. They've said this will allow us to use very, very few studies in uh, issuing regulations. And, of course, they will be the studies provided by the industry, uh, which is quite supportive of this, because the industry can set their studies up to produce that sort of, pr provide those raw data points as well. Um, and so the, the idea will be we'll stop issuing new environmental regulations. So well, I think the, the principle is a very good one. It has to, We have to, uh, and certainly prospectively, we should be requiring that. I, I agree with BMJ's position. I think it is the right position. But in terms of setting regulation, uh, it's really fraught with peril. It just feels like they've kind of got you coming and going. <laughs> it's uh, it's like a whack-a-mole. Yeah. And as someone who did work within government, um, you say that regulation you don't think is necessarily the best way to try and, and tackle this because um, it's slow and it it, uh, it it's definitely, well, it's, it's so broad brush, it can't pick up the nuance of, of all these things. Yeah, well, certainly our current regulatory system is very slow, uh, especially because it, the requirements set by the law are so high that we can have a hazard out there for quite a long time before we deal with it. Uh, one issue I dealt with when I was at OSHA was the uh, chemical called uh, diacetyl, which is used to manufacture a product that tastes like butter. And it was used in a, a microwave so-called buttered popcorn, though there was no butter in it at all. The <laughs> butter would have uh, spoiled after you know years on the, on the shelf. But this product does make things taste like butter. Well, it was discovered uh, at first at one microwave popcorn factory, then a number of others, that uh, when it's heated and breathed in, uh, can cause a, a really terrible uh, condition, bronchiolitis obliterans. Mm. It destroyed the lungs of dozens of, of workers. It caused, you know, led several to need lung transplants. Um, OSHA was started moving very slowly to begin to um, to control exposure, but there were some lawsuits, and the lawsuits went very quickly. Uh, by the time there was a hundred million dollars in settlements or awards against the companies manufacturing them, because it turns out they knew or probably should have known exactly of the problem, um, the industry pulled the chemical. They said that we're done, and so when we were looking at it, at OSHA <laughs> plodding along trying to issue a regulation, it became clear we shouldn't waste our time on it because the industry had already moved on to a different chemical. There was no way the regulatory system could move as quickly, which is actually relates to the COVID-19 crisis in mm. some ways. The, um, for OSHA to, you know, actually in, in 2010, we began work on a standard to protect workers from airborne infectious diseases. 
And this was after the H1N1 uh, epidemic in the United States, which was quite serious, though nothing compared to what we have now, obviously. But uh, it was clear to uh, us at, at OSHA that we didn't have a standard of that would adequately protect workers from airborne infections. We had a bloodborne pathogen standard that was promulgated during the HIV epidemic that was very effective, but we didn't have anything for airborne uh, exposure. And for almost the entire time I was at OSHA, we were working on that for more than seven years. Um, of course, when the Trump administration came in, uh, they, they ended that effort, so we don't have a standard now. But OSHA could issue an emergency standard, and regulatory agencies rarely do that. And even in you know, this you know, massive worldwide pandemic, um, the Trump administration is not moving quickly and saying we could issue an emergency standard. They said, well, you know, there are other things we can do. And it's unfortunate. I think um, we need to have a regulatory system that is much more nimble hmm. and that can address uh, exposures and certainly novel exposures much more quickly because, you know, we, there's, there are so many examples now of, of either new chemicals or new exposures which are uh, making people sick that the regulatory system just can't keep up with. So in the book, you do have some thoughts on uh, some ways in which science could be um, better done to uh, to do this, some steps to prevent that um, doubt uh, creeping in or that, sorry, the creation of doubt uh, creeping in. Could you uh, explain what you, what you think might work? Well, you know, I think that you really have to separate out the funding for the study from the, the, the process of conducting the research. Because uh, even the most well-meaning scientist is, uh, has their, uh, their opinions and their worldview shaped by who pays them. Uh, you know, the, the best example of that, which I think is very powerful, are the studies of Vioxx. Uh, you know, the early clinical trials of Vioxx uh, uh, compared Vioxx to naproxen. Uh, and it, it was a randomized trial, but not a placebo trial, and uh, showed Vioxx it was a painkiller, very effective one. Mm -hmm. uh, but shortly after FDA approved it, uh, some uh, scientists at the Cleveland Clinic looked at the, at the clinical trial results and said, you know, the arm of the study of patients who were given Vioxx had more than twice the risk of cardiovascular event. And the response by other scientists who were independent scientists, like they were academic scientists, but paid by paid for by Merck, said, no, no, it's the uh, protective effect, the cardioprotective effect of naproxen. Now, you know, we don't have a drug that prevents 60% or 70% of cardiovascular events. If we did, we'd put it in the water supply. But they looked at this data and they said it wasn't the Vioxx it was raising the risk. It was this other drug that was uh, that was lowering the risk, and that's why Vioxx looked like it was a higher risk. At the same time, Merck started a randomized clinical trial using a placebo to see if it if Vioxx prevented colon polyps. And because there is, they used a placebo because there is no uh, known prevention for colon polyps. And that trial had to be stopped early because so many people were dying of cardiovascular events. 
And so we, we learned the answer very quickly. That, and one of the things we learned was here were these well-known academic scientists whose vision was clouded by their relationship to a drug company. I'm sure they didn't say, think to themselves, well, I'm going to lie. Hmm. He's got to say one thing. But, but I think they really didn't see it. What that tells me is you really have to uh, ensure that there's a, a real wall between who pays for the study and who does the study and who interprets the study. And I think there are ways to do that. And I think this, is, and I know this is something that, that BMJ has also been advocating. Um, we need to have systems where producers put in money to pay for the research about their product, which they should be doing, but that the researchers are selected by another group and they do their research independently. We have a model somewhat like that, which is I think quite a good one in the United States around uh, air pollution caused by motor vehicles. And some years ago, the Environmental Protection Agency and the Motor Vehicle Industry uh, came together and they formed something called the Health Effect Institute. Half the budget comes from the vehicle manufacturers and half from the EPA. And they have an independent board and they give out money that comes from the government and the uh, industry to scientists who are not, who don't have to worry that the industry, whether or not the industry will give them the next uh, grant. Mm. And I think that's important. You know, they, we've seen over and over again what we call the funding effect. And whether, whatever you think of the, the, uh, how the scientists doing the studies are conceiving of the study, how they're designing the study. Over and over again, you could see that if an industry paid for the study, the results are much more to their liking. Uh, you know, we see that with e-cigarettes, for example. And this is, a, this is a new area of research. We need to know more about it. Uh, in my view, e-cigarettes are an incredible improvement over combustible cigarettes and will no doubt prevent thousands of cases of lung cancer if they're, if they're substituted, if people who smoke combustible cigarettes move to e-cigarettes. On the other hand, we have millions of, of children, of teenagers, who are now starting to use e-cigarettes, who didn't have to use it, um, and are now addicted to it. Uh, we don't know the long-term effects of pulling this mix of oils and nicotine and flavors and holding it into your lungs, then releasing it. Uh, would I trust Juul and other companies that are owned by you know, the tobacco industry to do that research? No, but we really do need to have that research. We need to know what are the long-term effects of these drugs, of these e-cigarettes. Should we be allowing people who have never smoked to start using them? And we don't know the answer to that. And so we need to set up institutes, you know, government agencies that can collect the money from the producers who really should pay for the research and then ensure that the research is done independently. Do you feel like there's uh, any chance of that? Probably not under the current US administration, but, you know, um, the next one or, or one after that? Well, you know, I think within the context of, of the larger regulatory framework, I mean, when I look at what's going on in the United States today, I think there are some parallels in Britain as well. Uh, right now, the the regulatory system, the public health regulatory system, is really in terrible shape. I mean, it's been uh, defunded in many areas. The um, the computer systems are antiquated. Many of the best people have left as a result of, of President Trump. But it wasn't so great before, and that's the thing we have to see. When mm -hmm. we look at at these issues of, of the requirements agencies would have to go through to 
to regulate a new chemical, for example, or I mean the the, um, the set Boeing 737 Max disaster, where the United States uh, Federal Aviate, uh, Aviation Administration essentially outsourced over safety oversight to the Boeing company. Uh, in some ways, Donald Trump and perhaps the COVID-19 disaster uh, has done us a favor in that we have to, we really do have to rebuild the regulatory agencies and the public health infrastructure. And this is the opportunity not to go back to saying, well, let's just figure out what we had before and put more resources into it, but to say, how do we restructure it so we create knowledge differently, we apply it differently, and this really should be part of that. And I think there will, there will be in the United States some discussion uh, once President Trump is no longer in office. How do we rebuild that system? And I think this this is the opportunity to include that part of it. Great. Well, that's surprisingly hopeful. <laughs> um, David, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to me on uh, the podcast today. It was lovely chatting with you. Thank you so much. And David's book, The Triumph of Doubt, is available now. So I will put some links in the podcast text to that. Now, if you're interested in this kind of talk about evidence, then have a listen to our Talk Evidence podcast, if you haven't done so. It now has its own feed, so you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or pretty much wherever else you get your podcasts from. That's it for this particular podcast, but we'll be back very soon with another one of our Deep Breath In podcasts. Now, these are aimed at GPs and very much want to discuss all those grey areas about working in primary care, the space between guidelines and practice. We publish that in the BMJ podcast feed, but again, it also has its own one available on all good podcast aggregators. So until next time, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.